Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Tommy, good to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on. I, uh, I really appreciate it. It's absolutely my pleasure, Ethan. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, um, we're really glad to have you, man. We're going to get into a really interesting conversation today, I reckon. But um, of course, we always love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. So, um, good question. I'm a New Zealand-born Londoner who grew up in, in North London um, and went started my career in politics, working uh, as a sort of policy and communications person, um, initially for some what's called public affairs companies, so companies that do communications around political uh, policy development or whatever it might be. Uh, and I also used to work a little bit occasionally in the European Parliament for the Green Party uh, as an intern uh, there. And then after about four years of working in energy and banking policy and infrastructure policy, sort of got to the point where 27 um, maybe the wrong party's in power to be a special advisor um, which is <laughs> a natural thing for a young budding uh, politico and then I thought you know, actually what I'm really interested in learning about after understanding how the political system worked was this thing called capital markets because everyone in politics kept on talking about the market and everyone in the markets keeps on talking about politics so my <laughs> My background was in economic history, so all the, the, the study of political economy over time. And so I've always been interested in the two. Um, and then, yeah, I managed to get a, a job at Merrill Lynch, now Bank of America, um, in the research department, looking at uh, what's called equity strategies, so trying to forecast um, equity markets, so looking at big trends, looking at you know uh, what, what should people be investing in, but also what's driving those investments, whether from a, um, real world perspective or from financial markets perspective or economics whatever it might be uh, and then yeah that took me to New York um, as a, I, yeah, I went from graduated from equities to, to all asset classes and worked in New York um, again at Bank of America uh, up until last year and, um, and so that got me into my early 30s and I sort of looked around and thought okay well I've sort of done my applied PhD in politics and my applied PhD in capital markets and um, how do I bring this together and think about something that I wanted to do? Um, and just, I guess, to finish, the, the essence of B0 came down to a, a bit of an amusing story. I was there thinking, I don't know what I want to do next, but I want to leave. Um, and I went to Japan um, to, to watch the Rugby World Cup with a friend of mine who's a musician. And he had just come off a world tour. And he was interested in saying, you know, I'm worried about my world tours. I'm worried about lugging all this expensive equipment around on, on, on planes. Uh, do you think, like, is there some way that, you know, I could become more, you know, environmentally friendly or I've heard this term carbon neutral mm-hmm. or, and then he started talking to me about, you know, what are these things called carbon credits and how do I understand, you know, are they just greenwashing, you know, what are they? Uh, and really for some reason, he, him asking me that question, was the sort of, uh, you know, the cliched light bulb moment where um, really what I'm still doing now, nearly two years later, is still the result of that one question, effectively. Uh, and so much so that I actually, um, before I left, tattooed it on my arm 
uh, the name of the business just to make sure that when I got back to New York, I would uh, follow through with my actions to actually quit my career and go and set the business up. Badass, man. So you've got a tattoo that says B0 on your arm? I've got the Japanese zero on my arm. Yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. Uh, where, where did your interest in, in politics originate? I'm just curious about that. Mm. Um, I mean, originally, my parents, my parents are academics. And my godfather was one of the founders of the Green Party. Uh, he's a German politician. So huh. he's always my, um, my upbringing. Um, my mom used to work as a diplomat for the New Zealand government. So it was a part of, sort of the household. Um, but I think everyone has the... The, the, the subject matter that gets them very excited. And I think, you know, when you get older and when you grow up, you look to try to align things that you're good at and things that you're interested in. And ideally, you're good at the things you're interested in. Otherwise, it's quite tricky. And um, yeah, and I, I just sort of started going deeper and deeper. And then honestly, I left university. I had no idea what I wanted to do, really. I studied history. And um, my brother said to me, oh, you know, why don't you go and do some of this sort of... Um, public affairs stuff and then I thought actually that sounds pretty interesting mm-hmm. I started getting closer and closer to politics and I think for me it was about that thing I said to you before what is political economy it's you know decision making and the economic systems systems that inform it and the political structures that deliver it and I think that that's what really interested me and I wanted to see how Westminster work you know what, what are all these huh. politicians do the whole time you know how does that how does that whole game work you know how do you how do you cast spells in the press how do you get people to set you know to, to vote for you and all that sort of stuff yeah so it's, it sounds to me like you're more interested in kind of understanding how the systems work rather than like creating change yourself or am i kind of picking up the wrong message i'm just curious if someone's oh, no, interested right. in politics i feel like they're like i want to be the leader or they're like something's wrong and i need to fix it, it sounds like you're like i just want to understand how it works and do whatever i can to kind of help it Certainly wouldn't have given you that answer if I was 21. I think oh, you would have found me <laughs> firebrand, a firebrand, you know, telling you everything that needs to be done. I think the, the, the realization was, um, you know, and hopefully B Zero Carbon is my attempt to, to, to do that, to be, to be a real life activist. I love it. It took me 10 years of just saying, how do I understand this stuff before I can come up with a reasonable answer? Or at least one that's coherent enough for me to try to invest my time in. Because you know, before you try to, you know, obviously everyone who's got a kind of the, the appetite for politics wants to do something, change something, do these better, mm-hmm. do this, you know, but, you know, it's a very active kind of like obsession. Um, but you can very quickly be banging your head against the wall because you just don't know quite how to do it. Uh, right. And also if you want to change, you know, if you want to change the world, you come up with some good ideas about how it can work differently because it's all very well moaning um, mm-hmm. and it's very good going from both left and right you know, wing perspectives. Um, what's really tricky is learning out how to build something that's better. And so I totally. thought you know, I'll invest a, a decade of my life and try and learn some of the things that I would want to use later in life. Admirable, man. I love it. Uh, where, did, where did you go to uni? Edinburgh. Okay. Scott in Scotland? Yeah, capital of Scotland. Um, very good reputation in America. Uh, decent reputation in England. Uh, or in, in Funny. The- um, yeah, no, it was, it was great. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful city known for the, the comedy festival in the summer um, and, you know, not known for the desperately dark winters that you endure when you're a student there. Sure, but, yes. um, generally very beautiful. It's, it's, it's got this amazing um, neo-Gothic architecture and 
the, the history um, academics that I worked or you know, that I studied under were, were very inspiring. And I, I really enjoyed my time there. Very cool, man. All right. So let, let's, let's dive right into it then. So w- what is B zero carbon? Let's go from that conversation to kind of now where you guys have an entire uh, corporation operating. So let's talk about what it is. Yeah. Um, so that we're, we're trying to build a, a climate services company. Um, so you're, you're doing it, man. Yeah, you're not so trying. It, it's, it's there. The website's so awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're updating the website, but the, I think the, we started with this principle, which my partner and I, which was how do we build better services for companies? Uh, firstly, looking to reduce their emissions. Uh, it was called decarbonization, setting them on the path to net zero. Uh, and then because we were actually asset research analysts, we started looking at this question of, yeah, there's this thing called carbon credits and there are these slightly exotic instruments and they seem to be a little bit, um, what's the right word, Americanization, a bit all over the place. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're a little bit like penny stocks, basically. And uh, mm-hmm. they're kind of a bit like, ooh, uh, you know, are they, are they real? And we started looking <laughs> and scratching and digging away at this question. So, you know, we have, the, we have two enterprises. We have an advisory or consultancy business, which provides research uh, and actual transformation sort of uh, management for companies and organizations trying to actually do their footprinting, understand where all their products are, map their supply chain introduce what's called net zero strategies where they actually actively decarbonize and make either reduction decisions or they substitute activities or they stop things um, and part of that can be used using offsets uh, buying carbon credits to become what's called carbon neutral mm-hmm. uh, and then finally helping them communicate that so um, our kind of most known u.s company uh, client is a company called bagu you know the sort of sustainable bags that you guys use when you buy never heard of them so you would have seen them if you haven't heard them. In fact, probably half of Boulder uses them for their shopping. They're the little kind of like um, reusable shopping bags, which have like kind of cool pictures of ice creams on or pictures of little things on. And okay. you notice these. And, and, you know, for example, that's the kind of company that we're working with who, you know, they, they sell these products and they want to know more about where they come from and about their supply chain, about what the greenhouse gas implications are of that value chain and what they can be doing to reduce it over time. Um, now that's the sort of consultancy arm. Um, the other side is a bit more of a hardcore kind of eco-finance wing, which is looking at, in short, building the kind of Bloomberg platform for, for carbon markets. It's trying to tr- bring together data and analysis um, and intelligence tools to basically help either buyers, sellers, investors, or um, creators of credits to make better decisions. So. Mm-hmm. It's this idea of creating an efficient and scalable market. And we're trying to really be in the, the belly of that beast to, to, to create the sort of system that everyone will use. So whether you're Goldman Sachs buying them for your, for your, to sell to your, um, your clients or for your own corporate activity or your, you know, the, the, the local auto shop that wants to just be doing their own little thing. You know, everyone needs to be buying the white stuff and understanding totally. it properly and that because it's such a frontier market, a lot of that traditional architecture, you would have like, you know, brokers that you can buy and, and, you know, you can read up on these companies and they have metrics that they have to report. These things don't really quite exist in many ways. So they're kind of having right. to build them and then turn that into a climate tech platform that everyone can use. Thanks for doing that, man. That's really cool. Uh, I want to dive into the details a little bit more, but you, you said, so your, your undergrad was in the history of economics. Is that right? 
Well, it's 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 um it's actually economic history. So the other even other example, my it's it's not the history. It's not like understanding. Although I I did do this, but it's not like understanding what um Keynes thought or what uh you know uh, Friedman. Yeah, whatever you know, or much more esoteric esoteric economists, unfortunately, like the physiocrats or stuff like this. You know, Adam Smith, these sort of things. Mm-hmm. It's more actually how that played out in real history. So you're studying interpretations of the Great Depression in America or the development of the energy industries in comparison between the UK and and the US, you know, how you create, you know, what the regulated history was for the US, how that compared to the nationalized industry basis in the UK. So it's quite uh, quite geeky, um, but you're not studying, for example, cultural history. So you're not studying the development of, you know, so a good example, you would look at, um, you wouldn't necessarily look at race, but you would look at living standards, you know, so okay. like how, how do people, how do living standards change over 50 years? And you might look at some racial elements of that, but you wouldn't be geared by looking at what was the story of, you know, this segment of society in their time. It's less those kind of questions, more, um, you know, the economic leveling up of the North and the South, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Bro, thank you for using your fundamental understanding of how markets work to actually help rather than fill your pockets with unnecessary wealth. I just really appreciate that about you. Um, But what I want to ask you is what kind of economic incentives do these large corporations have to bring their companies net zero rather than the fact, you know, we all need, you know, we believe we need to save the world and all that stuff. But what's like the the hard, like measurable benefit that they're going to get from this? So it's an interesting question. Um, you know, wasn't it for me? Basically, that's, uh, that, that's right. So, so the way I would describe this, um, that what's changed in the past eighteen months, you know, really the twenty twenties, is with I think with for a variety of reasons, this idea of what I call climate awareness, this idea that we need to care about the planet. You know, mm-hmm. you say today's champion of that is Greta Thunberg, but there are many other champions in, in the past. And it's that sort of placard waving, we've got to save the world, do our bit stuff. Now, my argument, particularly post-Trump in America, is that's actually been won. You know, I, I, you, you know, I know there are some people that are out there saying this isn't real, but in general, people are kind of like coming around to the idea that this is a real thing. Mm-hmm. The next argument um, is climate action. What do you do about that? So yes, it might be real. Yes, there might be this deterioration, but what do I do about it? Now back to the point about corporates. They've traditionally said there is this trade-off. You know, you, you said Friedman. Friedman wrote a very famous essay about shareholder value, in which he said that, that the priority of a of a company is to maximize the value, you know, their shareholder value. But maybe, maybe he had his time. <laughs> he had his, he had his way. You know, he was the inventor of an economic regime, and you know, and the guy, whether or not he was there for thirty, you know, he powered the global system for fifty years. So you know, you could say you don't like him, but he's, he's a bit of a legend in terms of history, even if you don't like what he said. But he he basically came up with this idea, right? And his his uh, the analog for the environment was if you're doing something which doesn't maximize shareholder value, like investing in in the ecosystem potentially. Mm-hmm then you're, you're not an effective CEO or whatever it might be. Now, what's changed is, and what I was really kind of experiencing in first hand in the research department at Merrill Lynch in New York, was the rise of this thing called ESG, 
which is this thing called environmental and social governance, which is the non-financial fundamentals of a business. What are you doing about diversity? What are you doing about equality? What are you doing about gender issues? What are you doing about the environment? What are you doing about governance? What are you doing about all these sort of things? And increasingly people have started to get, okay, I understand you have to have governance structures. I understand that you can't just have 90% white men all the time you know, and these sort of issues. But actually they're, you know, they, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they're, 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 they're super important, but they're somewhat more imaginable in how you implement them. You know, I know that the face of my boardroom has to change. That's at least something I can picture. I can literally make that happen, you know, hopefully, you know, in good time. The environment, the E, is really tough because it's like a whole systems analysis. You know, it's, it's yes, the systems analysis to the social and governance side, but it's, it's on a different, completely different planet, you know, like, no pun intended. But the... <laughs> The, the idea here is, okay, well, imagine, going back to Friedman's point, that the environment starts affecting shareholder value. Mm -hmm. Now, without turning a bit too sort of financial value, this is sort of what's kind of started to happen, right? For so sure. you, know, you can see it from the Wall Street Journal, from the Nat Nat just general news, from the way in which Biden's gone about the reconstruction post-COVID. You know, it's environment, 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 it's jobs, it's jobs, it's, it's, you know, the two are linked, the two are linked. That's actually reasonably new, right? And, and that, that permeates through government, through society, through companies. So how do you make corporates care? To go back to a simple answer, they need to care because I believe their share price goes down if they don't care. Now, if you really want to make a company sweat, you make it, you start affecting its cost of capital. It's, it's ability mm -hmm. to raise money, it's ability to create new you know, products, new services, new customers, it's resilience, it's long-term valuations. And this little E, which is a big E in the planetary term, but in financial markets is a little E, has been percolating through the sort of psychosis of, of all the investors, you know, precipitated by this big shift which happened in the past three or four years, which is millennials now outspend boomers. Okay. You know, the example of that recently, the, all the game shop stuff with the, with the, you know, the drop by Biden and all that changing around with you know, Robin Hood and all this sort of stuff. That mm -hmm. could never have happened before because the size of the wallet for the, boom, uh, the millennial generation was just not that big. But now millennials are going around going, I want to invest in companies that do better for the planet. So that kind of brings together that circle, which is to say, I'm a company, I've got decisions to make, I want to maximize my shareholder value, even on that really narrow interpretation of a company, suddenly my environmental policy is part of that. So that's kind of what stop, that's kind of what you have to do. The other way, just to be very like econometric for a second, is you have to force companies to price the environment into their business models. Definitely. If you force them to price the environment, they will take action because companies are rational and they well, ideally, and they want to minimize costs. So that's government forcing them to do things. That's um, customers saying, I'm not going to buy your product because it's not recyclable. I'm not going to buy your product because I know that you use sweatshops. Now that was the stuff of the eighties. The stuff mm -hmm. of the 2020s is I'm not going to buy your products because it's damaging the environment. It's damaging the climate system. You know, it's based on non-renewable fossil fuels. It, you know, it, that's 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 their buying power stuff. And companies listen to this stuff now, not as quickly as you'd hope, but they also know that the ones that get that right are going to have more market share. 
So, you know, so suddenly you can talk their language. They care about market share, about mm-hmm. return on investment, they care about sh- the share price, about their, their you know, all that, all that sort of stuff. If you can turn environmental paradigms into stuff that they traditionally cared about, then you can kind of kill two birds with one stone. Thanks for sharing. I, I really appreciate that. It'll take some more thought for me to process all that. I'm looking for like quantifier measurable, like, inputs to make it like you like not just like consumer preference but like that it has to be done i wanted to i want to ask you your personal thoughts what do you think about like a price on carbon so there is a price on carbon there's lots of it it depends where you live and in the u.s i don't know man the u.s i don't think we have anything it's not true there's lots of trading systems in the u.s there's i think there's about 12 or 15 state-based emissions trading schemes so in california there's a price for carbon in fact, there's, there's, there's several prices for carbon. Hmm. The idea of a uh, carbon tax hmm. is one way of introducing a price. So we will tax what you pollute. There is the idea of forcing companies to set themselves on the path to net zero and letting that the price of those actions dictate, you know, the uh, sort of somewhat be market-based as opposed to a tax-based. Um, and then there's something like an office, a carbon credit. You know, if you buy a carbon credit as a business to be carbon neutral, that is a carbon price because you, for the first time ever, said, I'm explicit, I pollute a thousand tons a year. I'm explicitly spending about uh, $10,000 on uh, on a thousand credits to, to offset that. My carbon price is $10. So actually you're starting to see this. Now, this is interestingly much more accelerated in Europe, particularly in, in, in the UK and in France and in Germany than it is mm-hmm. in the US. Um, I mean, obviously, as you imagine, it's, it's more as you can on the outside and less as you go on the inside. But, but that is starting to happen. And there's many, many prices and many guises for carbon. The question could be, do you need a global price? And do you need a global tax? And then it's about what does that policy lever to you know, create in terms of what comes out of that. So, if you have taxes, so I'm a business. I want to, you know, I'm being taxed on the pollution that I, I draw in. By the way, many people we are taxing their pollution in various different ways, but on the carbon and the greenhouse gas emissions. So that's a tax, right? So I'm paying that tax to the government. So is the government spending that money on creating renewable energy systems? Or am I supposed to also be spending that money on renewable energy systems? Because you're taxing me. So I'm going to go, well, I've paid my taxes. Mm-hmm. So are you creating the system? Or if I'm forced to do it by policies, but I get to decide how it's spent, I'm then going around and going, oh, I need to go and buy off different suppliers or different people. Is that a better way of doing it? You know, these are the sorts of like philosophical debates that are going on at the moment. If you introduce a price on carbon and you introduce a tax on carbon in any balance, what are the types of externalities, consequences of those uh, policy levers, and what does that mean for the economy in real life? You know that that's that, but that's that's actually playing out. That is playing out. You know, it's important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my favorite proposals from the citizens' climate lobby here in the U.S., where we just create a dividend and pay it back to the people, because then that way you don't increase the size of government; you just decrease the amount of emissions. But uh, that's we've talked about that on the show plenty. I want to uh, I want to talk about your like what services your company provides because right now you guys have three primary services. Is that right, or do you do other stuff on top of that? No, so yeah, I mean, so we 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 originally did because when we were starting out, which is what the, re- the 
Chrome website reflects. We were trying to do a little bit of everything just to see kind of what's the stock and then Hell yeah, man. what we're interested in. And, you know, maybe a little bit uh, without some, you know, without some direction sometimes. You, you could happily criticize. Trailblazing, trailblazing. Yeah. So, so, you know, as I think I said at the beginning of the show, we've, we've really iterated and been finding our proposition. We provide, you know, research and consultancy services for companies that want to become net zero and, 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 and change. And the main part of our business is building this climate tech platform, which looks at the quality of carbon credits. And so that's our real focus. Sorry. Quality of carbon credits? Yes, that's it. I'm sorry. Don't worry about it, man. Most, most people are listening anyway. So quality of carbon credits, which means like the actually like effectiveness of, of the cre- the carbon credits, like how, how much they're actually legit or, or what? That's the, that's it. In a nutshell, are they legit? That's, that's what we're trying to say. So we're basically, which we can go into if you'd like to, I can go into that now. What I mean by that. Let's um, do it. A carbon credit, just, just to be clear, we're talking about credits created in the voluntary market. Now, you know, the, the, the 1.0, uh, the one, you know, the, your first unit in the university, what is a carbon market? There are two kinds of carbon market. There's what's called a regulated market, like the California trading emissions trading system. And there's what's called the voluntary market, where I exist in a part of the economy, like I sell clothes, that are not... Uh, subject to regulation from government on what I do with my carbon. So a heavy industry in the majority of, of America, particularly uh, and, and in all of Europe, all of the European Union, including now, now the UK and the European Union, that's all regulated. So I am I'm obliged to reduce my carbon emissions because of regulations. And there is this thing called an allowance that's been set up. That's what the, what's traded in those markets. So every year, I'm allowed to pollute, let's just say, X amount of carbon. I'm on the path to reducing those emissions. So the next year, everyone in that area is allowed to, to produce X minus 10%, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're trying to always reduce. And then the value of those instruments is a function of scarcity. So let's say there's a million instruments in circulation. Every company has, has its own target. If I surpass my targets, I can sell those additional credits that I didn't use to, let's just say, someone else who's struggling to to do that. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way of doing two things, allowing companies to trade with one another, um, you know, surplus and deficit companies, and also totally reducing the total supply of them every year so that it forces companies to change. That's nothing to do with what we do. That's oh. the regulated government markets. Okay. That's been going on for about 20 years plus in the in the EU and, and in various guises in the US. Hold on a second. So does that mean in the EU they impose uh, like emissions requirements on corporations? Yeah. So they have to offset with with these tools or, or else they'll get penalized or something? It's not offsetting. It's they must decarbonize. Okay. And so you are allowed as, so if you're an industrial company, um, you produce chemicals that go into some sort of industrial process or something, you know, real heavy, dirty industry. You are legally obliged to every year reduce the impact that you create every year. And you are given a number of 
you basically give an allocation and I'm basically saying in year one, you can pollute, let's just say a thousand. And in year two, it has to be 990. And in year three, 980. Mm-hmm. And I'm obliged to either meet those objectives by investing in change or buy credits off someone else who's investing in change quicker. That's just the way the market works. Now, yeah. there's a whole market beyond that in more <clears throat> mundane and less sort of heavy and dirty industries, which is called the voluntary carbon market, or something like a bank operates it. A bank doesn't, doesn't ex, ex, uh, extract oil. It doesn't, you know, not directly. It doesn't burn it in, in, a, in, a, in a gas, in a, you know, in a power station. Um, but it does employ 50,000 people and have huge amounts of impact because of the buildings it uses and that sort of stuff. You know, uh, international clothing brand you know, Nike or something, it's not, it's not creating, you know, noxious gases, but it is producing, you know, a billion products a year. And mm-hmm. they all have their own consequences. These guys are not caught under the regulated market. They're not, they're not obliged. They're not uh, to, to change things. They do it because they, as we said at the beginning, they either want to because they think that's a good thing to do. They want to be ahead of the market. Voluntary market. That's the voluntary, like literally you're voluntarily doing it. Now in that market, the process for creating, and this is what we mean by offsets, a carbon credit is pretty simple. I've got a piece of land or I've got a business activity that's, that could either be enhanced and sequester, what's called sequester or remove carbon or mm-hmm. I could change my activity and that would cause avoidance, like building a renewable energy plant, or, you know, would, would cause me not to be, you know, emitting, like putting some sort of like, you know, clean filter on a chimney or something. The problem is I can't pay for it. It's really expensive to do that. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a farmland in, in Montana, which has been decaying because of overgrazing for the past hundred years. And as you know, soil is an incredibly, you know, bountiful carbon sink. And the decay in that soil has caused the ability for the carbon cycle in that area to be you know, eroded. You know? And so some people get together, some landowners and some conservation groups, and they say, right, so we need $100 million to go and restore the soil in this enormous area. Yeah. How do they get the money? You know, like, where does that come from? It comes from a couple of places. The government can give it to them. Not the easiest thing to do, but you know, possible. Money, like financiers, could give it to them. And what do financiers want? A return on their investment. Or, you know, you and I could donate some money to them. Hard to get enough money from a donation base. So increasingly they're saying, right, I need to get some money and I need to borrow it. Uh, and I so to go do these projects. Now the credits were invented under the Kyoto Protocol to subsidize this process. Credits, carbon credits are like welfare. They're like a welfare payment for a project, right? It's a way of saying, look, I think I can raise, you know, 60 million of that 100 million to do this project, but I can't get the rest of it because I just can't get it out of, any, you know, out of anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I can monetize the climate benefit, the quantifiable change in greenhouse gas emissions as a result of this intervention. I can monetize that, sell it to people. And you, company in Boulder selling T-shirts, Patagonia, who wants to go out and support cool projects because you pollute 500,000 tons a year, you're like, okay, well, I pollute, you know, whatever. I don't know, I don't know whatever. Things, but 
yeah, five five thousand tons a year. I want to go and invest in some projects. How do I do it? Oh, I'm a project. I need some money to get my project done. I'll create this instrument. You can buy it. I'll send it to you. I get the money from my project. You get the benefit of having your carbon reduction. All right. Yeah. Let's slow this down because this is where it gets very confusing for non like economic people. So the voluntary market is someone is doing a decarbonization project and they're looking to like raise money, for example. Uh, So it's I I get it, but I want to make sure like anyone who's listening can understand the way that they're this. You said it's like a welfare for for carbon. So sorry. So I'll, I'll be less. I'll be very simple. Yeah. People can. There are two parts of this market. There's demand and supply. People demand credits because they want to hit their climate objectives. I'm a corporate. I pollute. I want to buy some of these instruments to offset my emissions. Mm -hmm. Very simply. How do I create these instruments? I'm a landowner, a conservation group, an industrial company, whatever. Or a DAC company as well, right? Well, DAC, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about that later. We can talk about carbon removal, yeah. So I I want to create a project, whether it's restoring soil, you know, restoring a forest, building a DAC plant, creating a waste handling center, whatever it might be. And I know that that action has an impact in greenhouse gas terms that I can quantify. You know, well, at least I think I can quantify. If I take that through what's called a certification process, like you turn enter, you know, you enter your account at the end of the year to get checked by your accountant to tell you what tax you owe. It's a bit yep. like that. You have to fill out all this paperwork and you have to say, because of the intervention that I'm making, I estimate 100,000 tons in this area will be saved or won't, you know, will be reduced. Give me some money for it, basically. And these and these certifiers will say to you. Actually, yeah, you've done the work, you've proven that you've made the case. I actually agree with you. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll check this and we'll monitor it, but we'll give you these credits to sell. And you go, great, because I need that money to do the intervention, you know, whatever it might be, go and plant all these trees or go and, you know, go and restore the soil by buying non-till tractors or whatever it might be. And over time, the intervention that you have, have, have created, and when I say intervention, it could be building a DAC plant, or it could be, you know, planting 50 million trees, or it could be, you know, imposing some change in industrial process. That will start to create a, a climate impact. And, and I can measure that, I can monitor it. And those are the things that you get as credits. It's like, ding, I've saved another, another ton of carbon. I get another credit to sell, ding, you know. And so that, that's the way it works. And the whole way your corporates, they're going, you know, what do I buy? What's good? What's bad? What do I think about it? You know, you're telling me soil's great, but this guy's telling me trees are great, and this guy's telling me that that's great. How do I understand this? What is it all about? And that's where you guys come in, right? That's where we, that's where we come in. So we go, you know, we, we help explain that whole process. And is that using the carbon ratings framework, or is it something else? Very good. So that's using this thing called the B0 carbon rating. Which Let's get is, into that our methodology for understanding the quality of, of carbon credits. So um, the, the, the analog here is how, you know, I want to buy a stock in the stock market. Mm-hmm. Why do people buy stocks? Because they- To make gonna, money. Yeah, to go up, because they think they're going to go up. How do I understand, or maybe you know, the thing is going to go down, a short sell. How do I make that decision? 
well, I need some data. I need to have some comparisons and fundamentals. I need you to submit your accounts. I need to interrogate it. You could make that decision by asking the guy next to you in the bar, you know, Jeff, what do you think I should buy? Whatever, buy this. You know, lots of people do that. Speculation. It's not, yeah, it's not a very, uh, it's not a very sophisticated way of investing, right? And then you have the full spectrum, which is, you know, or they do it like games or they just go, oh, you know, I just want to throw fire at someone. I don't care if it goes up or down. I'm just doing it for other reasons, right? You know, whatever the psychology is. And then the other side, you've got, you know, at least what the big banks will, will tell everyone. And my experience is that there are really well-meaning people doing really well-meaning research a lot of the time mm-hmm. who are trying to take these companies apart, put them back together again and say, the share price is $100 a share based on all of these assumptions I think the share price should be 120, so you should buy it. Mm-hmm. You know, or I think the share price should be 80, so you should sell it. And they're doing, you know, huge amounts of, sort of statistical and you know database analysis based on very, you know, all kinds of trends and, and and data points. And hopefully, you know, if they're any good at their job, they'll give you good advice. Now, that doesn't exist right now for the carbon markets. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you need to do to, to start doing that is going, how do I have a framework which lets me think about these things? So if you are learning how to value a company, you'll learn accountancy frameworks and you'll learn- um, Present value, future value analysis. That's my value, favorite. Uh, you know, um, discount models, all this sort of stuff, you know, DCFs, these kind of things. It doesn't really exist in the market. So in the, in the carbon, so in carbon, what happens is, you know, I said, you have these projects and you go to a certifier. Look, I think this, these things are real. You know, can you give me your stamp to say that they're real? Which is, these things are called like the gold standard or Vera or, you know, American um, carbon registry. There's all kinds of ones. Uh, and, and they'll go, yeah, all right, we've done, you know, we're an independent body. We've assessed all the paperwork that you have submitted and we will help, we're happy to make you issue, issue credits. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with that process is there's loads of assumptions built into it. So, you know, if Jeff, your mate from the bar, or, you know, um, Donald, your, your, you know, private wealth broker for Morgan Stanley, you know, you'd hope that Jeff had knew less about the world, you know, maybe he doesn't, but knew less about the world than the guy from Morgan Stanley. But what does he use to do that? Now, he needs that sort of, those toolkits. Second of all, in carbon, the way it's been set up is you don't need either of them because the certification person's told you that they're real. That's all you need to know. Gets a bit complicated, but basically they say it's real. You say, great. It's not a very sophisticated thing. So to take that forward, to take that into something which is more manageable, you have to say, okay, well, how do I understand if it's great? You know, how do I make, can I trust you? as a certifier can i trust that you are correct because i am you know i'm a buyer mm-hmm. you know these three people have all followed what's called certification processes but they're telling me it's 15 dollars they're telling me this one costs 30 dollars and they're telling me this one costs 400 dollars like, help me out here like I, you know they're all worth one should i be rational and just buy the cheapest you know because obviously if everything is worth one you'd be rational and you just buy the cheapest, right? If you're telling me 
that it's $2 to buy this and it's $1,000 to buy this and they're both worth the same thing. You know, give me, give, show me to someone that would buy the $1,000 one. Right. So we're saying they're not the same thing. They're uh-huh. not actually worth one. They're worth different things because, you know, they, they, they you know, because of the way you think about it, the way you can model it, et cetera, and I can go into that. But that's the essence of what a, what a rating methodology does. It's trying mm-hmm. to create some sense of interrogation tools to assess whether these claims that are made that sit underneath these credits are, are really true. So how do you guys make, make money then? What's like your income model? Uh, great question. Yeah, no, we, we do the consultancy. That's how. Um, so you, you work with the buyers to consult them on which credits to buy? Okay, so at the moment, we make money by helping companies become net zero. And we subsidize the platform with some of that money. Once cool. the platform is ready for use, it's just going to be a tech subscription based. So, you know, I'm happy to even give you a, when it's ready, you can have a free, free user, but you oh, log yeah. on. Like you, you know, you log on if you're interested in, in lots of data sets about carbon credits, and you log <laughs> on and you'll pay a subscription fee. So, you know, we will go and talk to, you know, name a global bank and that global bank or name a big investment fund. They're going to go out and they're going to build, well, spend 50 million in carbon credits. Mm-hmm. They need some idea about how to model risk. Like, you know, totally. because... They've read an article in the FT, or they've they've gone, you know, they've, they've read an article in Nature magazine. But ironically, that's a lot of how they make those decisions right now. And so you need to be a bit more systematic because that's not really a very effective way of, of having like a meaningful market. Like that's not very good data. So they'll subscribe basically. And then corporates who want to buy these things, they'll subscribe because they want to help someone to look to understand what's good and bad. Brokers people that sell the credits to the corporates, they'll want to use it because they want to know how to, what to buy. You know, a broker's job is to buy at one and sell at two. You know, mm-hmm. how do I know what to buy at one? You know, and then the corporate's job is, is to understand what broker A, broker B, broker C, broker D is telling me and say, how do I compare and contrast them? Because they're all selling to me at two and which one's the best. And then, you know, a developer is saying, I want to make these projects, these credits, but you're telling me that there are, you know, 20 different sets of paperwork I have to fill out. Which one is the best piece of paperwork to get the most climate impact and the most money back? And then I'm an investor. I've got three different projects I can invest in. How do I compare and contrast which projects to invest in? You know, mm-hmm. it, it works for everyone, basically. So it's just a way of everyone understanding, you know, what, what it means to be a, a good or a bad instrument. Is it all just strictly focused on carbon or does anyone take like a broader look at ecological footprint? Like for example, becoming zero waste or something like that. So, so not waste, um, at least not yet. The, the long-term goal, and this is what I was just having, I was just at a lunch about is looking at other what's called sources of natural capital or ecosystem mm-hmm. services. So water systems or biodiversity or pollination systems and all the other what's called regulating and and servicing um, uh, systems that you might have. Because an interesting interpretation is carbon. And when people say carbon, to be very clear, carbon is shorthand for carbon dioxide equivalent, Mm -hmm. which is short term shorthand for greenhouse gas emissions. 
So people talk about carbon and what they really mean is, is this bigger thing called greenhouse gas emissions, but no one yep. can it every single time. So they just say carbon. Um, that's the first, you know, almost market in a new wave of markets, which is effectively natural capital, natural markets, not ones created from stocks, you know, man-made instruments, ones created from organic instruments. And so a lot of what we'll try to do if we're successful over the next 20, 30 years is build those asset classes. When you're successful. Hopefully when we're successful, build those asset classes with people because, you know, people are already thinking about beyond, you know, climate change is not the only ecological disaster that we're experiencing. Uh, But but carbon is the most developed market within the instruments that people are looking at to address that from a kind of like more financial theory perspective. Um, The challenge is just that it's not a financial instrument. It's this weird scientific instrument. So it requires a sort of new set of thinking to turn it into something like that. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you sharing all about that. I hope people can kind of get it. It's really complicated. I think we'll eventually all these different videos will come out that can explain it like very simply. But as you said, this is constantly evolving and hopefully there's more like standard procedure. Well, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Uh, before we kind of sign off here, do you want to tell me a little bit about your partnership with Carbon Engineering? Yeah, so look, um, carbon credits are made in many different ways. Uh, and some are really cheap and some are really expensive. And um, as I explained, they can be different qualities. Um, one emerging solution, um, not without its controversies, mm-hmm. is technology-based removal. So it's quite a specific interpretation of, of, of climate change that right. what's wrong, it's a bit like a sort of Western medicine versus Asian, like, you know, inputs, medicine. outputs. Simple. Yeah, it's like, you know, like, I, oh, my leg is broken, fix my leg. Not like my body and mind are like deteriorating, therefore think, you know, heal the soul. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the kind of way to think about it. So, you know, something like carbon engineering is amazing because what they've gone and done is they've invented this system, which is, you know, the perfect carbon credit almost, which is to say, we literally suck carbon out of the environment transform it chemically and then bury it permanently and this is a real frontier technology it's really expensive and it hasn't been built yet so what what we were working on them to do is how can we make that available to more and more people so they can buy this technology so we work we work with them and and said how can we help create like a kind of legal framework and a contract and all this sort of stuff Uh, and the idea there is what, what's called deflationary demand is when you have a very expensive frontier technology, it's, it's, it's very expensive frontier technology. So you know, not that many people buy it. You know, mm-hmm. Think about solar 30 years ago. But you, know, you have a falling cost curve. So you know the more that the people buy it, the more likely it is that it's going to go down because you know, it allows investment, it allows you know, more and more production. So you're trying to kind of kick off this um, this business cycle with with the we're helping to kick off the business cycle where they will be get get cheaper and cheaper because more and more people can access it. And in terms of the broader impact of direct air capture or other forms of removal of technologies, they have a very big part to play in accelerating carbon removal. Mm-hmm. But in, they are not, you know, a standalone solution because. 
specifically removing greenhouse gases from, from you know, or, or CO2 from the ecosystem is not the only thing that's going wrong. And as, you know, someone said to me at, at the lunch, you know, just because you suck carbon out of the environment doesn't mean that the, the, the animals don't die. And so right. it's not, you know, they have a huge role to play alongside all the other things. It's just that what's really interesting is it's a very scalable and highly effective way of doing this specific thing. And so what we were really trying to do is trying to provide research and, you know, support to kind of promote that. Um, but it's not to detract from other types of, of interventions. It's just, it's, there's only so much land on the planet and obviously, and, and you know, and there's, there's the seas as well that you can use. And, you know, we'll need as, all the help that we can get. And these totally. technologies are very good at accelerating that alongside that nature-based solutions. Yeah. Have you seen the film? Uh, I think it's called Breaking Boundaries with David Attenborough. And there's, I think he's a, a Swedish scientists where they talk about like this the eight different like bound like you know biological boundaries of the earth and climate is just one of them but yeah no like you said like it's i, I love the the simplicity of it it's just like in and out and i feel like I, a lot of people could get on board with that but you're right of course there's other ecological issues but you know right if if you suck carbon it might it might not mean that animals might not die if we keep hunting them and killing them and pouring you know p- pollution into their environments but it is seems to be one of the most existential threats is this climate crisis. So that's why I appreciate uh, everything you guys are doing at B zero carbon. Um, any other like methods of sequestration that you're like really optimistic about? Um, yeah, I, I guess I, I'm, I, I, I reframe the question. Do it. When, you know, what you want is the, the good stuff to rise to the top and the bad stuff to fall to the bottom when there's a world where every credit is worth one ton and you're incentivized to buy the cheapest possible stuff, it's kind of a world in which the reverse happens. Or maybe maybe some good stuff still goes through. But So for us, it's about letting there be that almost natural selection in various techniques, but where people who are making decisions to buy, create, invest, or, or, you know, or sell them can make better decisions to do that. Because you know, who are we to judge, you know, what, what, what's good or bad, because there's all kinds of impacts from different solutions. It should be about making sure that they're valued correctly and that they're intelligible and that people can do that. Because, you know, there's, there is a reason why companies, you know, you know, whatever natural selection takes place, but to do that, you need to have, you know, good information. So I think there's all kinds of roles for everyone to play. I think increasingly, you know, nature-based solutions will be seen as a way of, broader ecosystem restoration and within that there'll be certain sort of like champion plays particularly in carbon or biodiversity or whatever i guess i'll just i'll leave you with the you know the central premise of people in this movement is returning the world from thinking that you know there's people and there's this planet and we're kind of in control to going back saying that we just exist in a global ecology and you can't kill the system and still exist. So you have to have this sense of like, how do we put ourselves back to that idea of circularity and existing within a greater sum of our parts? And this is, this is the fundamental philosophy, I think, of what people are trying to do. And it just has lots of different ways of expressing itself. I love it, man. Any like 
uh, last pieces of advice for like an individual who's really interested in pushing this market forward? Um, on a personal level. Yeah, I think I think a couple of things that people can do. You know, what are your biggest sources of emissions as a person? It's you know international travel, um, and obviously which class you sit in in that international travel. Uh, it's using you know a lot of goods that have you know obviously bad inputs. It's the energy you consume in your house, and you know and those are the sort of big sources really of what we do. Obviously, the diet that you consume. Um, so being mindful. You know, I'm not I'm not someone that believes that you should, that the whole world should, should eat leaves, but I think you know maybe you don't eat 17 beef burgers every day. You know, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. we chill out a little bit on, on the beef uh, and just stuff like this. So that's kind of very important. I think then my you know if for anyone that's listening who's who's kind of itchy in their chair and their careers, um, don't be afraid to give up your career in something that's considered the 20th century industry and just just like just go in and it's there's a huge emerging climate industry or environmental industry just go and join it and retrain and that's that's much more fun than doing some middle management job at a bank you know or whatever it might be so don't be afraid to sack off your career and go and do something else which is contributing to the future that you want to see and that's probably the most activist thing that you can do I, I couldn't agree more and I appreciate everything you guys are doing at B Zero Carbon. Thanks so much for coming on the show and taking the time and talking through everything. It's been a it's been a real honor, man. I, I really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. No worries. All right, everyone. And of course, we will see you next week. Have a great day. Peace. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate. Here at Climate Change Realty, we don't just donate 50% of our net commissions to fight climate change. We also donate a full 50% of our real estate referrals. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.